and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Really excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks and speaks and talks about soft skills. See, we believe labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication, when you label those competencies as soft, it actually devalues and minimizes the importance of those skills. We believe these are the skills that make people strong. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased. And I really have been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lastly, If you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who continue to spread this podcast with friends, with family. We really do appreciate you sharing these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Johanna Ferris is currently the general manager of Call of Duty. So she is highly involved, especially with their eSport league, where she is head of the leagues. She was also the commissioner of Call of Duty eSports before transitioning to this role. And prior to that, she worked at the National Football League, where she was vice president. She was involved in business development and marketing strategy and fan development And she was on a pathway to continue to rise up that corporate, we even talk about a corporate ladder and she sort of rejects that idea, but she was definitely a rising star in the National Football League. Um, What's even cool about her that you may not even see on a resume or on her LinkedIn page is that she's also 
uh, a musician. So when she graduated from Harvard, she actually moved to California and started writing songs and making music. And you could see her really light up in this conversation when we talked about music. Uh, in this conversation, we also talked a lot about faith and religion. And that's actually where we started uh, in, our, in our talk. And so Johanna, I think what makes her really unique is that she's got multiple sides to her. She's a complex person. She's highly driven. She's highly ambitious, but she also has a lightness to her um, that is really likable and is really refreshing. And she's clearly very sharp and very bright, but she's also someone who seems to be trying to be grounded. She calls herself a yogi. And so I love this conversation because there's depth to it. There's richness to it. And we really get into who she is and how she sees herself as a leader, how she sees herself as a high achiever, and how she sees herself as a person. So I know you're going to love learning from Johanna. I certainly did. So grab a pen, grab a piece of paper, and here is Johanna Ferris. Johanna, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to chat with you. I think your journey is fascinating, and we're going to get into it. Uh, where I wanted to start is actually... You said to me offline, it's like, yeah, if I wasn't working in the corporate world or in sport, I would be really interested in, in studying divinity and, and religion and, and faith. So talk about your relationship with spirituality and, and faith and how you see it today and maybe how you saw it 10 years ago and maybe 10 years before that. Um, and I'll just caveat this by saying I identify as Jewish. Um, I was raised to be Jewish, but I took about a year to try to explore my own faith. And I met with a pastor, I met with a rabbi, I wanted to meet with an imam, but I didn't do that. Um, so I, I just am interested and intrigued by people who may identify as one way when they're younger, but then when they choose their, their spiritual framework or their religion, that's very intentional. And this is called the Intentional Performance Podcast. So that's some backdrop there. And I'm still learning and trying to figure out my way on it. Um, but I'm curious to learn how your perspective uh, is today and how it might have changed. So give us a little background on that. Yes. Well, first, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I am very humbled by that. Um, and I love that you started here because it's true. I'm like a theology geek. I majored in comparative religion when I was at Harvard and I adore my parents because they said, look, go to Harvard and study what you actually are interested in studying. Don't worry too much about, you know, you got to be a lawyer, you got to be a doctor and um, really had that deep dive liberal arts education. And I think I'm a lot better for it. But to your point, I guess I've just always been, even as early as I can remember having memories, I've always been sort of thinking about spirituality, thinking about relationship with larger forces than ourselves, right? And existential, why are we here type questions. I think what was interesting when I got to undergrad was one to really put those questions to work in an intellectual context. So what does it mean to actually like write on things like spiritual journeys or belief systems and how frankly human beings have navigated the most essential questions around meaning, purpose, community, um, how to interact with the world and each other. And it also helped me not only figure out how to again, some concretize some thinking around that in a more formal and structured way academically, but what I loved about studying world religion 
and the way that we were taught it as undergrads was really about learn how to write well. So while you're also wrestling with these huge macro questions that are sort of philosophical and some sometimes even scientific and psychological um, and physiological and all these other things, it was awesome to also just learn as a student, well, those are really heavy topics, but how do you get to these really concrete insights? And what we all might want to write 3,000 pages on, get it into three pages, right? And, and so it was, it was a both end to me of like really being educated in the content that I was ex excited about learning, but also learning how to be a great communicator, a more sophisticated and more nuanced writer, um, and really thinking about how do you structure thinking, especially when these big ideas are so, are so huge for all of us. So to your question, I think because it's always been, I almost say this um, with a little bit of a, a smile, but I often have felt burdened by my obsession with theology and the spiritual path because there's not a day that goes by where I think you're not feeling the pressure of, well, what is my purpose? And am I using my time wisely? Am I here to just sort of accumulate I don't know, accomplishments and achievements and some income and put food on the table? Or is there something bigger that we're all supposed to be participating in and, and how, how meaningful is it really? And so beyond curiosity, I think it's also been almost a, a constant nagging question for me about how am I using my time? How am I participating in repairing and healing the world if that's what we're really here to do? Uh, where's my empathy at? And how do I balance those questions that are often never-ending and open-ended questions with very uh, tactical work day-to-day -day as a business executive? And how do you negotiate those things, right? So I don't know. You and I could talk about it for hours. I would love to hear your spiritual journey. I've journeyed as well. Um, I grew up in the Jewish faith as well. I affiliate as Christian now. My husband and I are very involved in our church community um, but I have friends who affiliate with just about every single religion you can imagine. I have friends who have disassociated from every, uh, faith-based organization or way of thinking, atheists, agnostics, and I'm fascinated by all of us because I think we're all wrestling with the same question. So Joanna, you mentioned your parents being supportive of you studying religion rather than something tangible, so to speak, that you could make a career out of. I studied sociology in undergrad and African-American studies um, in undergrad. And I remember the first question people would say is, well, what are you going to do with that? And when I graduated from college, there wasn't an answer. Maybe today there's more of an answer. Um, but for you, uh, it's one thing to study other religions. It's another thing to convert. And both of us coming from, from Judaism, there is this fear that exists in, mm. in our communities that we won't exist. And so there is a, a lot there when someone leaves, so to speak. And it leaves doesn't even sound the right way. We're not like, right. we're not, there's some other religions where it's like you maybe leave, but um, yeah. How did your family respond or react? And um, when you decided to go in a different direction? Well, it's still not something, you know, that we talk about too much, you know, but I think it's because we, we let um, everyone in our family kind of 
chart their own course, you know, and, and let that again be the open-ended question. My mom converted into Judaism, so maybe it's just in the blood. Um, but I think where you were going in the first part of your setup is also about this whole like intentionality, the choices we make at some point in our life that are not sort of thrust upon us, even with all the love in the world, but how do we take the time out and the pause to say, hey, wait a second, does this, does this fully represent how I wanna you know, chart my course? And if it does, wonderful. Um, and if it doesn't, there's a lot of courage that has to come into this system to even question first and foremost, let alone do something with those questions, let alone explore other avenues. Um, I think we're seeing that, frankly, all over society. These, you know, how we are indoctrinated maybe um, by certain norms. And then where does the individual get the permission potentially to call a timeout and just reflect on that and then say, yes, I want more or no, I want different. And who's gonna support those choices along the way? It is a very scary, um, part of the process to actually stop and reflect and, and, and really think about how fulfilled your soul might be. And so I also think that's really where I light up. I would, if I could, whether it's divinity school or whether it's call of duty, corporate boardrooms, man, if I could spend 30 minutes a day interviewing people, like you're interviewing me and just asking them like, where are you in the, in the faith journey? No matter what the response is, I find it fascinating because everybody's probably wrestling with that, but we haven't, I think as a modern society, especially in the West, so secularizing in many ways, we've sort of put that as, you don't talk about that, we don't talk about that. And so I'm always curious, like where are we gonna create more space for people to be in touch with, with those questions? It's interesting, I just had my dad on the podcast and he was episode 277 and I'm, he's definitely not 277 in my life. Uh, we have a great relationship and he's had a massive impact, but it is interesting. We got to some places in that hour and a half talk that we'd never gone to before. And so it's got me thinking about, you know, why is it that sometimes we don't have the most difficult conversations with the people that we love the most? Um, and then there's the empathy piece, which you brought up. And what would the world look like if we just sprinkled a little more empathy on each other, uh, for each other, uh, and not in a manipulative way, but in a true, non-judgmental and loving way? And now I sound like a hippie, but I think there's a lot of truth to it. Like, yeah, what if someone said, all right, Johanna, I think that's really interesting that you've gone your path and you've discovered something that's meaningful for you. And that's kind of what it's all about, I think. Um, I think. I think what you're touching on as well is it's also not binary. If you really think about it, it's like, okay, that's where I'm at now. I don't know where I'm going to be three years. From. I, and imagine if the permission was granted that it is sort of this ever evolving practice. It, it links into yoga and, and, and I'm a total yogi. At least I'd like to fashion myself as one. You know, I do yoga every day. And what I love about it similarly is that it is a practice inherently. So there's no like end state. There's no like, I did it, you know, I'm perfect now. Every time you're checking in, it's different. You got different things going on that are awesome or really wrecked. And every time you come back on the mat is again, this point of reflection is sort of check in, but at no point 
in that journey? Is it, is it made to feel there, like there's some final end point where you have finally, you know, uh, realized nirvana. And uh, I love that, you know, cause it all, it's sort of built into the very ethos to just sort of always come back and, and say, if we're always changing, well, then every day should be a new conversation and we should grant ourselves as well the, the permission to, to evolve. We had a yoga instructor on the podcast and he says that yoga means to be in relationship with. And so like if we're in relationship, you know, with ourselves, then we create more awareness. Uh, and so it's really interesting. But as I'm hearing you talk, I'm also thinking about you as a leader. And I'm thinking about you in the seat that you're in, in a world where companies are having a hard time serving their people in a way that their people want to be served. Uh, do you work from home? Do you come into the office? Do you care where they live? You know, how many hours a week are they working? Uh, how much leave is there when you have a baby? I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that I think companies are trying to figure out as they build a culture. So for you as a leader, and you think about maybe helping someone on their journey and, and pouring into them, what does that look like for you as you're leading humans and, and organizations and, and talk about your style as a, as a leader? I love this question. Um, and I'm actually really glad that we are landing on this question, having weirdly set it up with the context of faith. It feels like there are two separate topics, but to me, they are not. Because it really is about like what informs how you show up. And back to your point on empathy, how much empathy are we bringing to any room? Um, against any mission. And so, yeah, I, I think we're in a little bit of a moment. I have often coined it in my own head. I'm sure others have as well as it's not just the great time of great resignation. It's not just this time of, you know, obviously the great pandemic. Um, it's great permission. It, it is absolutely this moment of permission to again, pause collectively, reflect. And frankly, it's reminded us as a, as as a human race that uh, when it all comes down to it, we're all breathing the same air. We're all going to be impacted um, by forces of nature that go far beyond um, the divisions of the day. And so it's been a humbling two years and we're not out of it, right? And so I think to your point about leadership, it shouldn't take a global pandemic to bring people to their knees to realize, wow, we should have really rethought how we put pressure on each other and ourselves or how we are setting up our cultures and our systems for uh, how we define great performance. Um, but so be it, here we are in this moment where I think it has again forced and also given companies, uh, including the one that I work for, to rethink what does great leadership need to look like going forward? What level of empathy needs to come through each and every day to enable people to do their best work? And how much humanity are we enabling in our conversations? And as much as we are all here, at least on my side of the fence, to drive commercial gains and to tell Wall Street good news every quarter and to sell as many video games as we possibly can, absolutely, that's, that's our hustle, that's our, you know, that's what we love to do each every day. But there's a way in which we can do it and need to do it differently now. Um, to your question about how I show up as a leader, you know, I always kind of flip it back. I'm always more curious, like, 
I would want, I would love to know what my team members say. I mean, there's what I think I'm, I'm doing as a leader, but man, my growth has come so often from having either other executive coaches who I've worked with in the past or peers or friends say, hey, here's the 360 review or here's the upward feedback or here's what I heard about you when you weren't around. Or, That's the truth of the matter, right? Um, what have what you, heard, oh, sorry, those 360s, you said, I'd love to know what they think about me. What have you discovered? Because 360s, for those that don't know, so there's different ways to do them, but the one that I use is called the leadership circle. And so it takes, it gives you qualitative and quantitative data. And I always warn people before we do them that there's going to be at least one thing in there that's going to smack you in the face. So oh, just, yeah. just be ready to receive that and to, to be ready for that. Um, they can be really difficult to receive. I remember one of the things when I did one for myself, there was something in there about my texting and someone said he texts and he's not like very compassionate and he's not like very thoughtful. It's, and I look back, I'm like, yeah, they're right. Like I could see how my text messages would come off as very transactional in nature. And that's something that I've been working on to try to improve, but I felt bad. Like I felt like, gosh, that's not my intention. Well, for you, is there something that's resonated when you have done those self-assessments um, that has stuck out that you've leveraged to improve and grow? There's so many, I mean, more smacks in the face, like, wow, that was really good to know um, over the course of however many years, I guess I've been doing this 15 plus. I would say one that has really stood out was this, the sense that I am so goal oriented as a leader. I am so big picture, vision setter. We're gonna go climb this Mount Everest. It's gonna be gruesome, but we're gonna get there. That I can oftentimes or I've gotten that feedback over the years, you lose sight of the intricacies of the people who are doing the detailed work of actually enabling you to summit in the first place. And so big thinkers, big sky type leaders, of which I think I am by nature, tend to mull over the, the people that you really need to pay attention to with great sensitivity and detail and focus and listening and affirmation every step of the way on that journey, right? Instead of getting so goal-oriented that that's all that it's about. And until we're there, nothing else is really worth the time or the effort to pour in. Another version of that that I remember reading from a you know Harvard Business Review on managing people book or something that you buy from the airport and a really great, you know, quick read. But I remember it was really this opportunity to be more affiliative as a leader, meaning spending time being like, Brian, how are you? What, what's going on with the family? How'd you do, you know, how was your birthday party that you were throwing? How did that, I had candidly probably 10 years ago, I had no energy for it. I had no energy. I, Cause again, I was like, why does that matter? We got, we got to go do this thing and it's big and it's huge and it's Monday. Let's go. Let's have all the meetings. Right. And I have really learned how important it is to stop and check in with all of those parts of somebody on my team, because it matters. It matters to building trust. It matters to seeing them as more than just getting to the top of Mount Everest, right? We've all got more than just 
um, the Outlook calendar any given Monday through Friday. And I needed to really, really become more affiliative as a leader. Is there anything, is there any system or process that you do to ensure that that doesn't get lost? I think part of it honestly is what you had said. You've got to take feedback like that and not just say, okay, well maybe, right? Like that's what sometimes you do. You like, you get it and then you, you kind of intellectualize it. And sometimes you like rationalize it away or, you know, it, and bringing it back to yoga, which is why the practice is so helpful for me. Those things you avoid, or you sort of say, that's not such a big deal, or I'll get to that later. Those are the things that are going to end up tripping you up in a really funky way down the road. If um, though we embrace it, we say, well, what's going on here? I don't think I'm an asshole. I don't think that's what that's about, right? And no one's really saying that, but what, what is it that I'm missing? So what I did was, you know, I, again, I started to read a lot of books on leadership and, and what does it mean to be more affiliative as a leader and really spend that time. I, I started to unpack the layers of my introversion. I am such an introvert to sometimes debilitating um, degrees. And when I became more aware of what that means for me and how that plays out in my life, I realized, okay, it will, it's not that I don't want to talk about that. In fact, I might prefer to talk about the birthday parties with you and your spiritual journeys and who are you really? Um, it's just that it's really draining for me. So it's not, I'm, I'm almost probably subconsciously avoiding it because I know that it's an energy drain. So now that I'm aware of it, I can say, don't do that. This is important. Take the time, walk up those uh, psychological stairs, so to speak. And just investing a little bit in that awareness changes how I, I think I've shown up in the last let's say, seven, eight, nine years of being aware of that tendency. And it's, it's borne such important fruit. And then you've mentioned yoga, but what else do you do to make sure that you have enough energy for yourself to be able to drain yourself? And I, I think about like an electric vehicle, but then, okay, maybe a hybrid. We just got a hybrid car, so it's relevant for me. But it's like, okay, we're if within 20 miles, we can get the electric. Great, great, great. All right, now we'll go to a little gas. Now we'll go back to the house and recharge it. What can you do? What do you do to ensure that you're able to not pour from an empty cup, so to speak, you're able to pour into people because you are charged up? It's two things. So one, just to keep it more in the, in the professional realm, I've actually learned not to underexpress my tendencies around introversion because at least my version of, of being an introvert means that solitude is my happy space. It doesn't mean that I'm like shy. I'm, I'm, I'm presenting all the time. I'm talking to people all the time. So I exert high extroverted en energy in my, in my, my roles as a business leader. It's just that to your point, I need these moments of solitude to really recharge. And I have learned actually that I've hired towards that, let's call it weakness or that idiosyncrasy. So I surround myself with a lot of people who have extroversion energy. And what's great, I, I kid you not, just an hour ago, I was meeting with my EA, my executive assistant. She goes, I know that you're going to need some times that I need to just block because you are going to be on autopilot, people, 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 people. So let me bake that in. So now she knows that. And now it's a strategy. So now I can just get like 20 minutes to like take a walk around the block. That's all I need. I just need to listen to a couple of songs and like think about life. And then I'll come back into the boardroom. I'll be good as new. So you get strategic about who you hire, who you, who you surround yourself with. 
Um, and when we talk about diversity, this is these are these things about diversity of style, not just diversity of background or diversity of thought, but um, this is one that I think is is really a, has been a, a great unlock for me. And then at home, you know, my husband and I talk about it all the time. He knows that I need moments that are just for me because it's going to get ugly if it's like me getting hangry. Like if you don't feed the beast, it's going to get real ugly come <laughs> come the afternoon. But I also need to be fed with some time alone. You talk about your executive assistant. How do you decide what to say yes to and what to say no to? Because it's clear to me you love to learn. You're talking about reading. Like you don't go, get to go to Harvard if you don't love to learn. I think maybe you disagree. You, you got to spend more time with people at Harvard than I did. Um, but how do you figure out, all right, yeah, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. And and how do you say no to things? Because I'm sure, look, you're in a position and have been in a world that is sexy, sports and video games and esports. I mean, these are things that people are excited about. I'm sure the metaverse has come in. Like there's all these elements that people probably want time with you. How do you figure out what you're saying yes and what you're saying no to? I think it changes each and every day. It's a little bit of gymnastics where I have to really think about how am I going to spend my time for maximum impact. I think great leaders no matter what their charter, have figured out along the way how best to balance the investment of their focus and time. If everything is focus and everything is how um, attentive we can be because with that comes our best performance, our best creativity, our best listening. Um, me going you know, from call it 6 a.m. in the morning to even 10 p.m. at night every single day, that's not gonna be my best performance. I know you know that, you've, you've done all the work on this. I've learned it maybe by being in, in different chairs that there has to be this balance and every day cannot be so rote that the predictability also undermines creativity or adaptability or agility. So I, I don't know how best to answer your question other than I have really made that a part of my practice as a leader to really think about, I don't know, the next, even just three days, it doesn't need to be the next month, but like, how am I, what's going on in the next three days? What matters most in these next three days? And how do they align or reflect the fundamental priorities that I value in my life? So this morning, before this podcast, before driving into the office, I was at my son's uh, classroom and he was giving a presentation dressed up as John Madden because he was doing a biography, you know, day with his classmates um, in second grade. There's no way I'm missing that. That's it's not even that's on that's a non-negotiable. There's no meeting that's happening that's going to take me away from that moment. But I have to be proactive in making sure that I'm blocking out my schedule accordingly. Uh, I think every I think every great leader really thinks about time, energy, focus, and the triangulation of those things. As I was researching for this, another thing that was so interesting about you, we could talk about sports, but music, you mentioned earlier, I like to go for a walk and it sounds like music also plays a big role in your life. I think I read or heard you wanted to be a singer and songwriter and that was something you were pursuing. Um, how does music still play a role in making you feel alive? Love it. Love these questions. Um, I feel very integrated, knock on one. I feel very blessed in this in this moment in time. 
obviously to have my health and my family's health, but also because these passions have all kind of intersected and interwoven in ways that I feel are, are, are really balanced. And I know that might change. So I'm trying to also relish it. But to your point, to your point on music, I'm as much a lover of the arts and music and performing arts as anything else in my life. I, I love sports. I love music. I love faith and I love my family and I love nature. Those are probably my top five in equal parts. And I need all of them in different ways throughout the week um, that I spend my time. So music, I really grew up loving. My parents have always loved, you know, every form of music. So I was always surrounded by the arts and the love of arts through them. I was able to really engage and invest my time as a performing artist at Harvard. So that was more my extracurricular time when I wasn't um, studying. And I found that I had, I could carry a tune, which was cool. Um, Went out on a limb as a starving artist um, here in Santa Monica when I graduated in 2003. I, I had the choice of either moving to New York and trying to break into the music industry as a vocalist or move to the West Coast in LA. And I was so cold in Boston, frankly, that I chose LA. Um, And very ironically, I can actually walk to the apartment I used to live in from the headquarters here of Activision Blizzard. So, you know, um, God always has, has a joke somewhere layered into his plans. It was amazing. It was as hard Uh, two years as you can imagine I mean starving artists for anyone listening of anyone who's tried it it's not easy it's not pretty but you're following your passion and um fast forward I I ended up coming coming out with an initial like EP I had moved to to New York by the time I was finishing it I had started an entry-level position at the NFL and there um I started to really invest in in my sports passion as a business executive How it's coming forward now though, which is really cool, which to my point about integration, is I'm a lead worship singer for our church community. So every Sunday you're gonna find me on the stage, you know, leading ministry there. And that really, aside from being a parent, that's my favorite job in the world. I mean, honestly, if I could do nothing else but travel the world and be singing um, in, in that way for communities all over the world, I would. What kind of music was it? So at Harvard, it was uh, I, pres- I was president of Kumba Singers of Harvard College, and if you were to Google them, they were founded in 1970, primarily because Harvard was such an isolating place for Black and African American and African um, students at that time, um, for very, I think, obvious reasons. And it was through the lens of performing arts and celebrating Black and African culture through art and, and creative forces that Black students were able to create a community of their own, but also channel a lot of that through, through the lens of, of art and leaving places more inspired than they found them. Um, and so by the time I was there, it was two, you know, early 2000s, um, we had grown to become the largest, most diverse multicultural student body in, in Harvard, at Harvard University. And no tryouts, you could join. I mean, and it was, I mean, every walk of life, every faith, every non-faith back to the, every sexual orientation, like not, didn't matter, but all, everyone who was a part of Kumba was, was there to kind of lock arms and in song and in dance and celebrating the, again, the legacy of, of black people through art. And it was just the most amazing example of working diversity that I've ever seen in my life that I've ever been a part of. Um, I mean, what what made it what made it what made it work what made it special? You know, I think I think 
creativity and art have this power that goes beyond language, that goes beyond nationality, that goes beyond, again, our indoctrinations or our individual choices. And when people of all backgrounds don't have to compete even to be a part of this community and celebrate something that's larger than themselves. And frankly, I just think the legacy of the content, the power in black music and black culture is so soul stirring, very literally, that you're part of something so moving and so transcendent. There are just so many times where, you know, we just felt like we were really participating in um, community with a capital C, how it should be. You know, it's not because we're all the same. It's not because we all think and live the same way. It's because we all join together to, again, do something pretty inspiring. Um, and we grew as individuals and we grew collectively as a result. And has, it continues to be one of the, the biggest um, student bodies at Harvard to this day and uh, something I'm very proud of. And the EP, what was what was that about? It was more like, uh, you know, traditional pop R&B stuff. Um, and I really thought, yeah, like, again, back to my parents who were awesome, uh, maybe it was their hippie vibes as well. When, when I graduated, I said, look, if there's going to be a time where I'm stupid, poor, and taking a risk, let me do it like right after I've graduated college so that, you know, if I have to fall back, I've got the cushion. And that's, and that worked out. You know, I think you'll hear like Gary Vaynerchuk say that a lot now. And a lot more people I think have come around to that, like take the risks early. Oh my gosh, don't do it and wait until you're, you know, 45 and you have this midlife crisis. So I'm glad I did. And I learned how to stretch a dollar. And I mean, all these things that I, I think are now infused in my life. So your identity is fascinating. And I always struggle when people say, do you like the beach or the mountains better? I'm like, I don't know. I like both. I, like, I like going yeah. skiing in the mountains or hiking in a mountain. And I like chilling on a beach and they're like, Oh, do you like vacations or trips? I'm like, well, I like both. I can yeah. sit and drink wine and I like to yeah. go on a safari or something and, and like be in the act. And so for you, I'm curious, like what do people get wrong when they try to label you or identify you as X or Y or Z? Like, what do you notice that people, maybe they, they stereotype or they jump to a conclusion without any idea of who you are and the complexity of who you are? Man, that's such an interesting question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before. I think, uh, yeah, like if you were to go to LinkedIn, you assume some things probably like, oh yeah, she's always wanted to be in sports business and she wanted, you know, she's gunning for whatever, you know, she wants to be this big executive. All of that is totally true, by the way, but it was never the plan linearly. I've never had this like linear, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get these types of grades so that I can go to this school and get this degree and get this internship. No, zero, never has never happened. I am the most zigzagged background in terms of my professional journey. And yeah, I think because I've been very lucky and blessed to have occupied the roles that I've had and have had amazing people, mentors, coaches, team members along the way that I have had, you know, veritable success in most of those roles. It would look to the outside, like that was all part of the plan. You know, it's like this ascension thing. It's like, oh, she's just trying to rise to the next part of the ladder. I struggle with ladders. I struggle with corporate everything. I, I struggle with, you know, like, oh, go get the MBA so that, you know, I just, 
it has never been that way. It has been a every two years building block. What do I want to do with the next two to three years? Who am I around? Am I learning? Am I fairly compensated? Am I in an industry that inspires me? Are we making impact? And then I pick my head up and then I ask the question all over again. And if it's the same, yeah, great. We're going to keep going. If it's not, I've pivoted. All right. So once again, I realized pretty quickly in my first couple of jobs out of college, me and corporate, were going to have some issues. I was not a good employee because I would, you know, and in school it's I struggled. I, I would talk back to teachers. Like I would say, well, why are we doing this and be a pain in the ass and sports coaches. Like I remember when I was probably in seventh grade, my sports basketball coach said, why aren't you all running the press break? And I looked at him in the huddle and said, we don't have a press break. And Boy, my dad was not happy when he heard that. And I got a talking to afterwards, but I, mm -hmm. I, I, I just, I struggled in those types of environments, but here you are, right? You are in, I mean, last I checked Microsoft purchased Activision or is going to purchase Activision or maybe not. I, I don't know what's going on there. It doesn't really matter. I don't care, but it was like a 68 or $69 billion purchase. This is not small potatoes. I can only imagine how many employees are at this company uh, with call of duty and in the role that you're in, I'm sure the amount of direct reports and the org chart, like it's gotta be there. Um, so how do you navigate your creative side? How do you bring your full self in your dreams and your vision and all the things that they probably hired you for while still recognizing that there does have to be order and systems and structures that that come along with it how do you blend those two i think by nature i'm a both and kind of gal so i am as much executive leader as i am operator and i feel that that has really borne fruit especially in the the roles that i've had that are general management in 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 nature or commissioner in nature or head of fill in the blank in nature where you have multiple functions that are all laddering into you as the overseer, so to speak. And you have to really set the strategy both for the near term and the long term and also build really strong teams, right? Which gets into hiring and, and learning and development and all these other things and motivating people to do their best work. That's my happy space. And so when I think about that, from an axis perspective on the Y and X axis, there's really no moment in time where I feel like I'm not trying to balance the two. I know that the best we can do as a company, as a franchise here at Call of Duty, for example, where to your point, you've got more than 4,000 people all over the world who are full-time focused on pumping out Call of Duty each and every day, right? And that's a going on 20 year franchise. So a lot of tenured experience poured in there. And yet we're still trying to chart new territory, step change, transformational type stuff. And so you need to be able to blend this sense of ambition. There's so much more we can still do. And there's still so much more wide open space we can command. And yet it's not enough for me to come in with pretty pictures and a you know, a, a cool uh, stage and podium and rally the troops, so to speak, and say, this is where we're going to be two, three, five years from now. It's going to be amazing. And everybody's going to, you know, crush it. That, that works for a moment. Where that actually happens is in the, the plumbing, right? The operator part of me. Okay, well, are the incentives aligned for that? 
are people, you know, given the, the resources that they need? Do we have the talent in the building to actually make that happen? How's morale going these days? Um, are people clear? I don't know what we all mean when we define success or do we have 70 different versions of a common language of success? Cause that's not gonna work. Um, and how does the operational rhythm of managing a business as big and as scaled and as profound, frankly, as something like Call of Duty or as the NFL, it's in the details. It's in the like really specific conversations about how are the numbers driving um, and, and creating the relationships um, beyond the PowerPoint, so to speak, to really make sure that everybody is, is working from the same script. And sometimes I find it becomes more of an either or. You're sort of like the visionary leader. You're like the, you know, the, the vision setter, the people rallier, uh, the great presenter and orator. Um, you say all the right things. You're, you're on all the right panels. You dress the part. And you need that, by the way. It can't just be operational uh, excellence. It can't be. But sometimes you lose the, the importance of the details and hiring against that and, and, and motivating the doers to do their best work each and every day when no one's looking. I just met with a, a general manager of an NFL team and, you know, I meet, I meet with people and then I just send them long emails. I'm like, I'm sorry, here are all my ideas. Here's my thoughts. Here's my questions. A lot of times I have a lot of questions. And so one of the things I sent to him, I said to me, a CEO, and I think the same thing applies to a general manager is like, there's three elements that I've found to be really, really important. And it's very rare that someone has all three. I think you can actually be good if you have two of the three. Um, so one is attention to detail with discipline. So you have to be able to read contracts. You have to be able to see how things are going and, and if you miss on some of those attention to details and have the discipline, like you can really make a mess of things. Uh, management skills with emotional intelligence. So I think like you, I like to blend things. And so there's going to be with, with all of this, like management skills with an emotional intelligence, a sense of awareness of yourself and awareness of your surroundings. And then the third is what I, I heard a lot of you is inspiring others with a clear strategic vision. And you have to be a little bit of a dreamer, a little crazy, maybe to see things that others aren't going to see. And we, we all hear these legendary CEOs who might be amazingly inspiring with their strategic vision, but suck when it comes to management skills and emotional intelligence, but their attention to detail with discipline was also good. So they got away with it. Um, mm -hmm. But I think mm -hmm. if you want sustainable success, it's like, how do you bring those three to the forefront. And so as I hear you talk, I hear a desire to operate, but also to be a strategic thinker. And I don't have all three. So my kryptonite is attention to detail with discipline. So like, mm -hmm. I actually think I've got pretty good management skills with emotional intelligence. I can inspire others with a clear strategic vision. Give me a whiteboard. We'll have a blast. I'll come up with 20,000 ideas. Ideas are easy for me, but the attention to detail and having the discipline to really read something and really like extract out and remember what was said in there. Not me. Um, and, and so I, I think it, it's interesting as I hear you talk, I don't know you well enough to know if you have all three, but if you do, like that's, that's a potent package, which is yeah. potentially why you're in this, this seat that you're in. Um, yeah. Okay. I want to shift a little bit here because we have to talk about call of duty. We have to talk about esports because I'm around your age and for people around our age, this is a confusing thing 
for a lot of us. But here's what's not confusing. We all played Mario Kart growing up or Madden or NHL or uh, 007, you know, GoldenEye or Contra or name your game. So we were gamers. I mean, I played a lot of video games. So I understand that piece. But we're not, some of us are not quite aware of and understand of like, wait, people are going to watch other people play video games until this thing happened. And I want to get your perspective on this thing given that you have a marketing background and you've been in it with the NFL, how do we market and develop business and grow this pie? Formula one has to be just such an amazing blueprint. Like I am fascinated by what they have done with a Netflix special with content, with marketing. And now I can't go anywhere without someone asking me if I'm into formula one and I'm just late. Like they all watched it. I'm on season two and people are leaving my house on a Sunday because not to go to church. They're going to watch Formula One, which by the way, to me, looks looks like a really dangerous video game. It looks like a a video game where these guys are risking their life. Like they're in the car and they're pushing this button and they're turning this. All right. So I just talked a lot, but I'm curious for you all. I'm sure you're watching what Formula One has done and their ability to grow in the United States at a rate. I don't think it's ever been done before the way that, the way that they've been able to grow. How do you see that in, in the lane that you're in? Because you have it, right? Call of Duty is a ridiculously popular, popular video game. Esports is growing at this astronomical clip. I don't know anybody who's going, but the numbers are there. Um, there. And it, it doesn't matter if I do or don't, but they're, they're there. How do you all think about it from a marketing standpoint as you're watching Formula One and think about what you can do to try to uh, continue to make this more accessible to people that would want to be fans? We talk about the Formula One model and what original content can do to educate and edutain um, probably every other week. And I remember when I came in, I left the NFL to help, you know, deliver the, the CDL, the Call of Duty League and, and Call of Duty Esports and take a lot of the same uh, business models and, and marketing models and fan development models and apply them here. And the short answer is, I think that's probably the best example that we will at some point espouse in very similar ways because there is nothing more powerful, even psychologically, we've seen this in every you know, generation, there's something more powerful than great storytelling to move people, to have them have some sort of deeper connection or understanding than just the, ma- the math of it, to your point. Like I could sell you on, on the quantitative reasons to believe, yeah, maybe you'll, you'll remember a few stats, but then you'll move on to the next interview. But when you are now moved and attached to the human side, the human interest aspects of these drivers, what they're going through and all the things around it. Now you're a true, you know, ride or die, no pun intended, a fan of the sport. And I think they've done such a a brilliant job. So it's going to happen. I'll I'll just put it that way. It's been active conversations we've had. I'm sure our competitors at other esports companies are thinking exactly the same way. I have some bias um, when it comes to Call of Duty because the, the stories underneath uh, the surface 
when you when you think about the stories worth telling in the Call of Duty esports specific, like so the, the best players of Call of Duty all over the world, right? If we were just to do our own Netflix series of that, I mean, I mean, made for TV, especially Call of Duty skews um, very North American. It would be very relatable, whereas a lot of esports was born out of Korea and, and APAC specific. Um, so that would that would appeal obviously different differently potentially or at a different clip here in the West. But man, oh man, it, it is it is made for for prime time. And so again, I think it's a matter of how and, and when those types of approaches are applied to the human interest power underneath the surface for esports. The second thing I would say though, in the meantime, is everything is timing. What isn't timing? I mean, the, the NFL is 100 years old, right? Uh, baseball is even older and so on and so forth. What media has done for sports, whether it's because they're putting on the live broadcasted event that is the Super Bowl, thank you, broadcast TV, um, that has modernized everything we, we know and love about the NFL and more. Same goes now for these OTT and new, and new platforms that are more on demand in nature, but it should be no different that over the course of the next 20, 30, 40 years, um, these mainstream events will be as normal to people as watching Wimbledon will be. And then it'll just be a question of scale, eyeballs, how many people were in the ball, how many tickets were sold, how many people tuned in. But it's the same, it's the same behavior. It's just, it's happening um, sort of for, for now and the next generation. Last thing I'll say, because I think it's really important, is... I, you know, my husband and I were, again, very blessed over the last, let's say, year alone, where COVID allowed to be able to take our kids to different sporting events. They've, they've gone to Rams games at SoFi, they've gone to Dodgers games, they've seen, you, you name it, right? When I took them to an esports event in August, I, and I don't pitch them on anything, I don't care, I'd rather them be, you know, doing homework, frankly. It was the only time that those two boys were glued. When I say glued, no, no asks for, hey, can I look at your phone? I need to go to the bathroom. I don't understand. Can you... Done. And so if that's one sort of you know, qualitative insight, even for somebody um, who's in it each and every day, I took note and I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Something's going on here. So you and I may not be you know, the generation where it, it, it blows the door open. It might be our kids' generation. Um, and right now, Formula One is having its moment, and I just love to see it, and I think it's going to happen for esports. It's just going to be a decade or two from now. Well, it's interesting to see them have their moment, and I think about the other traditional sports. Like, what would the NFL be without fantasy football? Like, it, yeah. like people talk about TV, but fantasy football changed the popularity of the NFL. And by the way, Baseball was first. I did rotisserie baseball where we had to fill out this thing. And I was probably seven years, six years old and they just couldn't quite gather it. But by the way, baseball was first with baseball cards. Yeah. These are all storytelling, right? It's feeling connected to the players, baseball cards or, you know, NBA 2K and the, you know, the popularity of that game we used to play or the NHL and, and the game, the stadium games that they have. And then their specials where they go behind and they tell the stories or hard knocks in the NFL, things that, you know, as I break all those things down, you're right. It's about great storytelling um, and making people feel connected 
to the, the team um, or the person. But I also think about um, innovation. So I've had on Paul Rabel on the podcast, who's out in California, uh, you know, with the pro lacrosse league, and they have really tried to be innovative on how they're doing things. I've had on Jesse Cole, who does Savannah bananas. And the guy is like a complete idea maniac. Um, but he's trying to disrupt baseball. Um, I know the people at the pro fight league, uh, that are trying to compete with UFC and they're really taking a different approach. And so it's just a fascinating time because I was saying this to a young person. I was with two college students the other day and I said to them, because of my podcast, look, look who I'm talking to right now. Um, like someone, I just booked someone for the podcast. I go, can you believe this person wants to talk to me? And I go, I said to both of them, I said, they're seniors in college. I go, what an amazing time for y'all to be alive where I can literally not spend, you know, I spent a hundred dollars on this microphone and like, uh, here's my podcast and yes. our capacity to storytell and be our own musician, right. Or be our own athlete. If we want to go deep, when we were kids, they said, you're playing video games, you're wasting your time. Well, now if I'm a 16 year old kid, I might say, mm, maybe not. Right. Like I, I could, I could actually pursue this. So for people to pursue the things that they're passionate about, it's never been more open and easy. And of course we have a long way to go and there's inequality and there's privilege and there's all kinds of other barriers for entry for different people all over the world, but what an open, awesome time to be alive, um, to create. Uh, amen to that. And I would build on that to say, cause I've been thinking about it a lot, even in my own journey, what an amazing time because of the openness, but also the convergence that's that's happening. So, so these, what were pretty siloed industries or professions, I find time and time again now because of new media and new mediums and new ways of interconnecting, um, they're starting to become much more fluid. What I mean by that, by example, when I left the NFL, it was a very psychologically intense decision for me, probably more intense than it should have been. Because... Yeah, because my identity was super wrapped up in that in that job. I I'd been there for twelve years. I was doing very 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 well, and so this whole risk just seemed insane and all this stuff. So it was a lot of turmoil internally to make make the jump and take the risk. On to your point, this big bet, like what is this thing? What is even esports? How do you even spell it? Right, like there's so much that was going into that. Why I say this convergence point though is I thought in my mind, okay, I'm closing this door on what was you know, 12 years of relationship equity in the biggest, baddest league of them all. And now I'm gonna go through this new Wizard of Oz door and hopefully it goes well and I'll learn and make all these new friends and, and relationships and, and learn a ton. Within two weeks of me joining Activision, I'm getting calls from my former employees at the NFL, I'm interacting with NFL, NBA, MLB, you pick it owners. I'm talking to celebs who we were working with in advertising or in digital media campaigns or what have you in pro sports. They're, they're gamers. They love Call of Duty. Hey, can you come over? They'd love to come to see. It was so interconnected so quickly. Every conference I go to, it's both my old peeps and my new peeps. And we're all just around the same table. And to put a finer point, you know, one of my, my compadre, Brandon Snell, who was, you know, we were both kind of leading, co-leading leagues strategy just a year ago for Activision Blizzard. He's now the chief commercial officer for F1. <laughs> and he came from the NBA. 
So it's all this big expanded opportunity now. It's not just the, the I, th I think the multiplicity of options that you know um, up and coming talent has at their fingertips. Um, it's the way in which these industries are converging to become much more interconnected. I also think I didn't do it justice. So I think Formula One is, is the better comparison. No offense to Pro Lacrosse League or the Savannah Bananas or the Pro Fight League, but y'all have it. Like, it's there. Mm -hmm. You have the fan base. You have I – was, I was just at an NFL facility, and, and we were going around, and they were talking about, yeah, we have to deal with our players playing video games late at night and not getting enough sleep. And so we're exactly. intentionally thinking about how we can combat that to ensure that they're getting enough rest and recovery so that they can perform. And I've worked with pro athletes who I'm not going to name them, but they like playing the game. You wouldn't more believe than, it more than their sport. Um, and if they could leave to play professionally in that, that game, they, they would do it. So it's different. And I, I think formula one is such a better comparison because formula one was so popular all over the world it just hadn't come across the pond yet and yeah and so they knew they had it they just needed to figure out how do they get it how do you make it mainstream how do you make yeah. the take yeah exactly. cool. all right so innovation but you also talked about focus earlier so knowing that you already it's not like you're some startup you know business like you have this great business and then how do we add on how do you make sure that things are focused as you're still trying things out and experimenting? How do you blend directing your attention, keeping the main thing, the main thing with also um, experimenting, trying new things, wanting to have a culture where I'm sure you want to, you want to dream big because it's, it's actually not crazy. Man, this is such a, this is the question, right? I mean, this balance of, not being so focused in the now that you miss out on the bigger ambition, but not being so over your skis, so to speak, that you, you, you have almost the, 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 multi, the multiplicity of choice that can really paralyze you. So my answer to that is it's a constant recalibration, right? Like, um, and, and, and a check-in as a team, as an organization, um, I will say in particular, uh, you know, Activision is already known for its rigor. So we're going to be as analytical a company as you're ever going to find. Um, so that's already a built-in strength, I think, very specific. Um, and it goes all the way to the development level. I mean, the, those who are actually pumping out and engineering these unbelievably interactive experiences in video games, they, the, the the science of that craft is so specific. It's coming down really to the millisecond, right? Um, so detail is already, I think, part of the DNA. And, and how do we then sometimes push the team to think collectively beyond the individual contributor to say, okay, well, where do we wanna be 90 days from now? Where do we need to be 120 days from now? What does it look like? Are we having the right conversation such that you know, come Q4, we're in the position we need to be in. So it's a constant balance of that, but I think that's part of my role. You know, I think the, the role of general manager, especially in this type of a field, has to appreciate the art of the craft. It's entertainment, but it's art. These are geniuses all over the world who are pouring creative 
thought leadership into the interactive experience that is Call of Duty, right? And you have to really understand the pride that's, that, that comes really just from that particular part. But then you also have to say, well, we're also here to sort of commercialize that art, right? And really scale it and make it new and dimensional and different and relevant for all these different types of, of demographics. Uh, so you have to wear those different hats and you have to be able to switch accordingly and, and respect both and toggle. I think it's just a lot of toggling, to be honest. The term general manager, when I hear it coming from sport, I think of a general manager of a sports team. Titles are titles, but I'm curious, like what in that general manager piece is similar to a traditional sports team general manager and what is different? Yeah, I think it would probably be really different in this case because whereas like when I was the commissioner of Call of Duty Esports, for example, and serving as commissioner of the CDL, it was very similar to, to Roger. It was just that like everybody knows his sport and like not a lot of people know mine, right? But there was a lot of, you know, you're you're kind of doing the same thing there, interacting with owners. Um, you're you're kind of a CEO, if you will, of the league office, and you're making sure that you're operating um, accordingly and driving the revenue model. This though, GM is very different to what I would say is what the GM of the Jets might be thinking about. They're really thinking about, you know, how are they going to approach the draft? How are the contracts looking? To your point, what's the salary cap I'm working within? They're really thinking about personnel and talent and game day and performance, um, both on the field and off. And, and, and how do we, we manage the whole system accordingly? I think here, this GM role is much more, more commercial in nature, more you're managing a multi-billion dollar business. It is a global business. So inherently it's not localized to the 53 man roster or whatever it might be. It's, it's going to be very different. Call of Duty comes through very differently as a scaled business in Croatia or in New Zealand and how we launch there than what we're gonna be seeing in the West Coast of, of the US. And they all matter and it's all happening in real time. Right? There are millions of players, as you and I are speaking right now, who are having their game game day, so to speak, their interaction with Call of Duty, and they're all probably sharing their thoughts, good and bad and ugly, with us on social media. And then we have to be ready to, to pivot on that while we're also baking for the new and the yet to come. Um, so it's much more about managing this behemoth of a business, um, thousand person strong, multi-thousand person strong workforce that's very highly distributed. Um, and what I think the role really requires when it's operating at its, at its best, aside from, you know, again, just the, the commercial excellence of that, of, of that skill is I'm a bridger. I bridge, I have to really see around corners and create conversations that are both strategic in nature, but are also multidisciplinary in nature, such that we're connecting dots all the Time. It is, it can't just be marketing's doing marketing over here and locs meaning localization for you know regions are doing that over there. And the commercial teams working with our platform part. It can't be that. I can't, I have to be the one to know how to knit those things together such that those functions are always humming. And if there's a problem, when it comes to me, I have to be the one to broach how we're going to solve for it very, very quickly um, with the right people and the right stakeholders. So a lot of liaising. <laughs> and a lot of um, managing leaders um, to unlock, you know, that the sort of cross-functional excellence that's required of a business of this scale. All right, we're gonna close. 
this is my last question. I promise. I, I sometimes lie when I say that. So I think I promise. Okay. I'm going to try to make it my last question. Here you are, you have this Harvard degree and it was in sort of liberal arts and you have this ambition and drive and then you have this free spirit. Uh, you know, you have race, you have religion, uh, like you have all these different components of you identity wise. We started with faith today. The biggest thing that I've taken away from getting to know you today is you seem very secure uh, in who you are, very comfortable in your own skin. What I've found in working with people is that they struggle with their own security of themselves. So maybe they went to an Ivy League, but they didn't feel like they belonged. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they're the CEO of a company, but they know or they believe or they're telling themselves a story that they're not qualified. Or maybe their religious affiliation is X, but they don't really believe in it. Or mm -hmm. maybe their gender is causing them to be treated differently. I could go on and on. When I hear you talk, I hear someone who says, yeah, I'm good, you know, going to church on Sundays. I'm good picking up my, going to my son's school and working my ass off at work. I'm good, you know, driving hard and working hard, but also being on a yoga mat. Like I hear the flexibility in you to be able to reach different people. I hear someone who is not, you can't really put you in a box. Like you've got all these different factors of who you are. The question, what advice do you give to someone who might be struggling with their own insecurity? Uh, whatever that might be, it could be race, race, it could be gender, it could be sexuality, it could be class, it could be educational. I've heard people, I've heard people that work at Goldman Sachs and say, I'm not an Ivy League person and I have to talk to all these people that are smarter than me hundred percent. Um, so like, I don't hear that in you. So I'm curious, like, what advice do you give to people if they say to you, Hey, I feel like a fraud or I'm an imposter or I'm insecure or et cetera, et cetera. Like, how do you respond to that? To be honest, I, my response would be welcome to the club. Like we all really, when, we, when you close the door and you turn off the lights, and it's just you in your head and your heart. Who doesn't like, oh shit, I don't even, I don't, why, what? I don't know. Maybe, you know, we all have that. I think we've created a societal normality around faux perfectionism. I just got off Instagram a couple months ago, best decision of my life, because I realized every time I was logging in, I felt worse about myself. And I was like, oh, wait, that's an algorithm built to profit off of me feeling worse about myself. Okay, I get it now. You know, so my point is, I think we are inundated with the self-talk and the external factors that are pouring into us these reasons to feel um insecure, to feel not enough, to feel imperfect, to feel here, let me go through my, my day-to-day -day and think about all the things I didn't do so well. And part of that is healthy. 
it really is. It's the athlete mentality to just kind of go back to the tape and be like, mm, I, I can do that a little bit better. That That's actually good. Some of that reflection you really need because it's going to make you better. But too much of it, that's where the imposter syndrome comes in. That's where that sense of why me and, and, and you know, uncertainty or the feelings of insecurity. And so we all feel that. And I feel like we need to create more openness and vehicles for expression to normalize that. Because then once that's out on the table, we don't have to have this psychological breakdown. We don't have to have 15 therapists, hopefully, who pull us out from the dark space because we were pretending like we had it all together to begin with. What if the assumption is like, none of us have it all together, but you know, today is today, doing my best, you're doing your best. And God willing, we're in a, in a safe enough and supportive enough environment to tap into our interests, make some money off of it, motivate other people in the process, create deep and lasting relationships, leave an impact on you know, those we love and, and those in need, and get up again tomorrow with our health and try again. That's it. That's it. That's all it is. So I, I love sort of that I'm coming across as secure but I'm not secure because life isn't secure and it's always changing. I think it's just more a sense of calm that I've tried to manifest in my life, which again, my yoga practice really helps with prayer, um, humbling experiences along the way, you know, losing more than I win and just being very grateful to be able to have an opportunity to, you know, navigate really cool, creative, high impact spaces with really inspiring people that's it. That's kind of it. And so I think just giving ourselves permission to not feel like we have to be perfect so that we can do away with that noise and focus on the day at hand and do the best we can with it. So I think that's a beautiful place for us to close. So I fulfill my promise. Um, Johanna, I know you're on LinkedIn. You're not on Instagram. I don't think you're on Twitter. Are you on Twitter? I'm, I, I am hiding in plain sight on Twitter, um, mostly so I'm connected with the Call of Duty community. But no, LinkedIn is usually my platform of, of choice. I'm sometimes on Instagram, but I keep it pretty private. So yeah. is there anything else, anything else you want to give a megaphone to it, Call of Duty? Um, anything else that we should direct people to uh, to learn more about you and, and what's going on uh, at the company as well? I would say, you know, less about me One, I just want to thank you so much again. I don't know how or why I would be on the list of people you would interview, but I'm, I'm very humbled by that. And I'm really appreciative. And I love that you are taking the mic and creating great conversations with, with great leaders all over the world. So thank you again for that. And I would say, look, if people are listening, it changed my life in so many different ways for the better to get curious about industries that I knew maybe very little about, namely esports, instead of judging it from afar and being like, that's not for me. I don't, that, that's not what I do. I do a traditional sport, you know? And, and I would have, I would have cut myself short and my joy short by not um, really respecting the curiosity and going in and just trying and getting to know communities. So I would advocate, get to know esports communities, get to know a few players, follow them on Twitter. Like Google some stuff. It doesn't even have to be Call of Duty. It could be Overwatch. It could be League of Legends. There's a lot of magic going on in this industry and it's worth um, trialing and, and, and learning about because it's really powerful stuff. It really is. And um, 
And I think uh, we'll all be better for it if we do. That's awesome. You ended with curiosity and curiosity is probably the thing I'm most curious about right now. Mm -hmm. It's just like, how do we cultivate it? How, How do we build that in our children? I think curiosity doesn't get enough attention and probably the biggest through line besides intention of this podcast has been that the people I have on are curious. So I love that you ended with that. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. I am not hiding. I'm there. You can find me. Uh, LinkedIn's the other place I like to play like Johanna, uh, Brian Levinson there. And then you can listen to all these conversations, strongskills.co slash podcast. I'm sure the listeners know exactly why I had you on. You're spectacular. Appreciate you giving us your time. I know you got a lot going on uh, and looking forward to many more conversations. Maybe we'll talk about the Jewish day school uh, in in Rockville, Maryland at another time. um, And your experience there. Yeah. So uh, (laughs) appreciate you uh, giving back to your Maryland roots here. And, and hopefully when you come back home, we can go grab a cup of coffee and and meet in person. So thanks for the time and uh, talk to you again real soon. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I, I started to unpack the layers of my introversion. I am such an introvert to sometimes debilitating um, degrees. And when I became more aware of what that means for me and how that plays out in my life, I realized, okay, it will. it's not that I don't want to talk about that. In fact, I might prefer to talk about the birthday parties with you and your spiritual journeys and who are you really. Um, it's just that it's really draining for me. So it's not, I'm, I'm almost probably subconsciously avoiding it because I know that it's an energy drain. So now that I'm aware of it, I can say, don't do that. This is important. Take the time, walk up those uh, psychological stairs, so to speak. And just investing a little bit in that awareness changes how I, I think I've shown up in the last let's say, seven, eight, nine years of being aware of that tendency. And it's, it's borne such important fruit.